Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. That is not far after the first five books of Moses. 1 Samuel 15. Last week we, we discussed the doctrine of immutability. And we said that God is without change. God is without change. He does not mutate or or change. A question that came up after the service, and was probably in the mind of some others, which is a question that often comes up when we talk about God not changing, is what about all those passages that seem to say that God changes? Like what about the text that God changes his mind? What about the, the text where God burns with anger and then he is, he is pleased again? How do we reconcile God being unchanging in His nature, in His attributes, and in His will, as we said last week. How do we reconcile that with texts that seem to say that God does change, that God does regret? That is the not-so-easy challenge before us today. And so we're going to begin by reading the entirety of 1 Samuel 15. And I want to read this text to see this what seems to be in our mind a paradox, very clearly, I believe, in this text. So let's, let's take up God's word now. This is 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, that is King Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fat calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen, 
that I hear. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took to the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilead. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then, Saul, then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father... We come before you today, and I come to you, God, with a, a, a weighty task in front of me, a daunting task, Lord, a, a challenging task. And I'm humbled by an opportunity to speak of you, 
try to wrap our, our, our small minds around an infinite God, Lord, we will fail from the outset. Uh, God, I do pray for a, a great measure of your spirit. I do pray for a great measure of clarity that I might speak only that which is true as I ought to speak, that I might do that in a way that is clear and understandable. God, I pray if there is any untruth in this message, that it might fall on deaf ears, that you might erase it from uh, the page. I pray now that we might approach you, God, with humility, that we might approach you with reverence and awe, and that you might help us. We worship you now through your word, Jesus. How is it that God can regret, and yet he is not a man that he should regret? Now what are we to do with what seems to be at least an apparent contradiction in, in this text? Now, let me ask you something, church. Um, are there contradictions in God's word? No. no. So that's a good presupposition that we bring to the Bible. Right? We're imposing something externally that we learn in the Bible. God is not a God of confusion. Right? God is a God of order. And so there is no contradictions in the Bible. There are just weaknesses of our own minds trying to grapple. Let me, let me say this. When we gather in the evening, we have discussion questions. And I want to encourage you, if you have questions or thoughts during this sermon, to write them down, post them in this chat group, or bring them tonight so that we can further discuss. We're going to do some heavy lifting today, and I imagine that for some of us, this is going to be new territory, um, but it's historic territory, I assure you of that. So, how does God regret, but He is not a man that He should regret? Last week, we discussed that God is without change. Our topic today is going to be a subset of that idea, that God does not change. The title of this message is, God is without passions. God is without passions. Probably not something that we say often, that we've heard often in the church. But I assure you this is a historic statement. Now, uh, you see on your handout, if you, if you have one, that this is a statement that's been common in the English-speaking world. So it first is coined, God without passions. In 1553, it, it, it comes up in the 42 Articles of the Church of England. And this is what it says there. It says, There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions. We've talked about the body and parts, speaking of divine simplicity, that God is a simple, pure being. And here, that God is without passions. Now that exact statement, without body, parts, or passions, comes up again in 1563, in the 39 Articles of the Church of England, again in 1647, in the Westminster Confession, again in 1658 in the Savoy Declaration, again in 1677 in what we call the London Baptist 1689, and again in 1679 in the Orthodox Creed. All that to say, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Calvinistic Baptists, and the Arminian Baptists, all in the English-speaking world after the Reformation, confessed that God is without passion. And it wasn't novel to them. Right? This doctrine, we can trace back through Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. We can trace it through Anselm in the 1000s, uh, through Augustine in the 400s, through Athanasius in the 200s, through Irenaeus in the 100s and 
most importantly, in the Old and New Testaments of the canonical writings. But I understand that even if all of these men believe this to be true, that does not mean that it's true unless we find it in the text of Scripture. Amen? But if that many minds of the Christian faith, including John Gill, John Calvin, John Owen, and many others, confess that God is without passions, we ought to take heed and at least investigate what that might mean. So what does it mean that God is without passions? We're, we're discussing today the doctrine of divine impassibility. Impassibility, not a common word that we use. I have a definition. I want to do three things today. Try to work with a definition. I want to then try to make sense of the biblical data because it is, it's kind of confusing at times. It seems contradictory. And then I want to try to answer the question at the end, why is this important? Why would we spend the time to talk about this doctrine today? Divine impassibility, according to Sam Renahan, is that God is not acted upon by anything outside of himself. There's more to be said. But that God is not acted upon by anything outside of himself. I, I added something to that there. That his emotional state and his will are not moved by creatures or outside forces. His emotional state and his will are not moved by creatures. God is not changed by man. Not in his will and not in his emotional state, if we can say that God has an emotional state. Certainly he's different than us. I have two words on here, and bear with me, because I think we need, to, we need to get through this to try to understand these things. So we all understand the word patient. Right? You're a medical patient. You're a patient at a doctor's office. That word patient is in this word passions, in the root, historically. Or maybe you've heard the word pathos, ethos, pathos. You go to the doctor's office as a patient and you say, Doc, my arm, there's something wrong with it. Can you help me? And the doctor acts upon you. He, he operates on you, if you will. He, he does something to you. You as the patient are passive, but you are changed. You are helped. He works upon you. And so a patient is one who undergoes the action of another. A sufferer, if you will, but not in an only negative sense. A passion, then, is the change that we experience due to that external act. Someone does something, and you and I are changed in our emotional state because of things that happen to us. We are a patient in that situation, and what we experience is a passion. Now, let me try to illustrate to be, hopefully, a little bit clearer. Uh, boys and girls... You guys go to the grocery store sometimes with your mom. You guys are a little bit older, but there's still cool stuff that you want to buy, right? You go to the grocery store, and there's all those things at the checkout aisle that they want you to want to grab. You know, candy and, and toys. In our local Albertsons, they have those, I think they're kind of creepy, little stuffed animals with the giant eyes. You know, they, and they're looking at you with these sort of sad puppy dog eyes. And have you ever been to the store, kids, and said, Mom, can I have that? You've all done that, right? There's something there I like. And what does mom usually say? No. She says no. And that's good for you. You've got to hear no sometimes. But sometimes mom says yes. And what do you do? You go, really? Yeah. And you got your little toy, your little stuffy, and you're all excited. And you pack the groceries, and you go in the car, and you put the stuff in the trunk, and you get out of the car, and mom says, help me with the groceries. And you say, 
Mom, where's my stuffy? It's gone. And what happens now? I'm sad, right? My, my day is ruined. Now what has happened? You were a patient. You were acted upon. You saw the toy, and you got the toy, and your emotional state changed, right? You were, you were okay. You were at the store. Now you're filled with happiness. But man, when that thing is gone, you've been acted upon again. Outside circumstances have caused you to now feel sadness. And if you're like some kids, that sadness lingers on when a wonderful toy is lost. Or maybe you run into an old friend, and you see someone from high school, and you're changing stories, and man, it's been so long, and nostalgia's coming up, and you're talking about your families, you're talking about your, your, your jobs and what have you, and you're feeling happy, right? I was just at the store. I didn't imagine I was going to run into Larry. Here's Larry. I haven't seen Larry in years. And so this situation has changed me inside. I'm filled with joy, and I'm telling stories. And then Larry says, hey, last week, tragically. And now what happens? I, I'm changed, right? I'm grieving now. I'm saddened now. I, I, I ran into a friend, and I'm up, and I'm down within a matter of minutes. Those are passions that I experience as I am acted upon by another person, another circumstance. Or maybe you have a, a company. This is your little small home company. And you're saying, I need, a, I need a guy, right? I need a manager. I need someone to take this thing on so that this year will finally be successful. And I'm not doing everything. And so you hire a guy, and he's got all the credentials. He's got the references. And you hire him on, and he's just terrible, right? He, he doesn't do the job. He, he's late to work all the time. He complains all the time. And now you're discouraged. Now what do you have to do? You have to go in a different direction. You experience, as we read in the text, regret, right? What is regret? Think about regret from our perspective. Regret is I, I do something and I run into unforeseen situations, unforeseen events that cause me to say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have bought this old car because this is junk and now I'm broke. I wish I would have known before I bought this house that it was not needing all this work. I wish I would have known before I entered into this relationship that it was going to be this. And we regret and we experience some sense of emotional turmoil. And then what do we do? We've got to go a different direction. And that's what happens in our story, right? King Saul is raised up and appointed by God. And then God regrets that he had raised up Saul. Now, should we read that text? To understand regret like you and I experience regret. That God raised up Saul and said, this is a disaster. What, what, did I, what did I do here? Why did I raise up Saul? He's not really the man. I'm discouraged at the, dare I say, mistake that I've made. And I'm going to go now in a different direction. Can that happen with God? If God is omniscient, if God is eternal, if God is sovereign? No, I don't, I don't believe that it can. So... That's what a passion is. A passion is when we are acted upon by an outside force, an agent, and we act as a patient. We experience a passion. We are moved because of things external to us. Now, with that out of the way, I want to look at some of the biblical data. Try to make sense of texts on both sides. So I've given you these texts in your handout because I'm going to move somewhat quickly. 
But I want us to see that the Bible speaks in both ways. It seems to say that God is passable, that He does experience emotions because of things outside of Him, that He does change His mind because of external forces, and then it seems to say that He does not experience these things. So let's first look at some texts that say that God is passable or experiences passions. The first one is a text we often come to in this conversation. And it's Genesis chapter 6. God has created the world. Man has fallen into sin. And here in this text, God is looking down at the world and He's seeing wickedness everywhere. Right? He's seeing the destruction that sin has wrought into the world. And this is what He says in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. So if we see this from a human perspective, we look at a situation and say, wow, this is not what I had anticipated. This is not how I hoped this would turn out. And that seems to be what God is doing, right? I regretted that I've made man. I am grieved in my heart because look at all of this sin. I'm doing something else. I'm moving in a different direction. I'm going to destroy everyone because there's way too much sin. Or how about Deuteronomy 9? Deuteronomy 9, it says, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So here we have man provoking God to do something. We have, we have man sort of changing God's mind or his will, moving him in a different direction. Because of their actions, God is growing in anger. And it says there that he was so angry, he was ready to destroy you. As a man that's so, that's so mad that he's ready to, to, to go off or to explode. Many other texts we could look at that say God is angry, that say God is compassion, that he grieves, that he loves, that he hates, all sorts of emotions that God has in the Bible. But then we also see texts that seem to say that God is not moved or changed by things outside of himself. Let's look at a, a couple of those. The first is Numbers 23, and in this story, there's a man named Balak, and he has spoken to Balaam, the prophet, and he basically wants... Balaam to get a word from the Lord to curse his enemies. Go get a word from God and, 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 and pronounce a curse upon my enemies. And so Balaam gets a word from the Lord, but it's the opposite of what Balak wanted. It's basically a blessing upon his enemies. And he's a bit put off by this. I asked you to curse them. Why are you, why are you blessing them? And he says, let's do this, Balak does. Let's go to another place. Let's offer some more sacrifices. And you go back to God and get a better word. Right? Get, get, talk to God 
and get him to, get, to say something different. Because I don't like those guys, and I want God to not like them as well. So Balak is sort of trying to coerce God, as if he can do something to change God's will or God's mind. And this is what God says in Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So he, here he declares that there is nothing outside of God that is going to change or coerce him. Another text is Daniel 4. And this text is very interesting because it is the words of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. As he has come to his senses after God has revealed himself to him in a very profound way, if you know the story, and Nebuchadnezzar now is in his right mind. And this is what he says in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now here was a king that thought he could put himself up against even God most high. And he's been humbled to say the least. And now his confession is that no one can coerce God. No one can move God or change God's mind or, or even say to him, what is it that you've done? Because he is the only sovereign. And then we have our text in 1 Samuel 15, where we read there that the glory of Israel will not lie or have regrets, for he is not a man that he should have regret. This is, of course, just after... God said, I regret that I raised up Saul as king. So how do we deal with these texts, church? How do we grapple with what seems to be contradiction of, of, of terms, even right in the same chapter? I have two what I've called here guiding principles. The first one is this. The texts that speak of who God is must take priority over the texts that say what God has done. That is, the texts that speak of His nature must take priority over the text that speak of His works. When God tells us who He is, we need to listen, and we need to then read the text that say what He does through the lens of who He is. And God says very emphatically here, God is not a man. He's not a man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind, and also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Why? Because he is not a man. Notice what God has done, as we've seen throughout this series. He, he drew a line in the sand. And then in between the two sides of this line, there is an infinite chasm. On one side is, is God, God the Trinity, the, the, the Creator. And over here, way, way down and far, far away is is the creation, right? And that is, as we've said, angels and worms and men and rocks and every single thing is here and God and God himself and God alone is on this side. And God is saying, as he reveals himself to us, that lying and regretting and the changing of one's mind are human things, creaturely things. These are things that men do. God does not regret, God does not change his mind, God does not look at what he's done and say, man, I, I messed that up, that was a mistake, that was foolish, I could have done that better, I shouldn't have chose that man. Because he is not a man. 
He is not limited in that sense. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is eternal. He sees everything in one present tense now. He sees all that has ever happened and has ever will happen. And as we said this morning, he has foreordained all things, decreed all things that will happen according to his sovereign plan. And so God is saying, I am not a man. I don't have these passions. I am not moved by external sources. God always accomplishes his perfect purpose. And he does not have regret because he cannot have regret. Regret would, would demand some imperfection in his plan, some imperfection in his will and what he's done. But while God doesn't change, beloved, certainly, certainly his dealings with us do change, right? We see God from different vantage points depending upon our life, our obedience, our lack thereof. For instance, if we harden our hearts toward God and go back into sin, then his discipline is graciously poured out upon us. Amen? If we repent and we return in faith to the Lord, his face shines upon us once again. We, we sense the, the benevolence of his countenance. But nothing within God was changed. Nothing within God was acted upon because I failed to obey or did. Actually, the opposite is taking place. I was acted upon. I was the one being changed by, by God's actions. God is moving men in the direction that He wants them to move as He accomplishes His decree, His wise plan. Think about the Ninevites, the Assyrians, that received the ministry of the prophet Jonah. Right? Jonah was not all that concerned about these folks, right? He didn't want to preach the gospel. He didn't want to preach mercy. He, he brought the law and he, and he left it there because he knew that God was a merciful God. And what does he say? He says, repent, or even ju judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, you're all doomed, right? And what happens? What do they do? They repent. Sackcloth and ashes, right? They they turn, their hearts are turned. Now, do we read that text and understand that God's plan was to consume them and destroy them, but because they repented, God's plan then changed based upon their actions? I think it's the opposite. God's plan is that they would repent through the ministry of Jonah and that he would humble his prophet in the meantime and that he would give us a small picture of Jesus, three days in the belly of the beast, resurrected to new life. All of this was God's plan. The Ninevites were the ones acted upon. God was just simply working out His eternal sovereign decree. Their repentance did not change the will of God. The will of God brought about their repentance, and the means was the preaching of the prophet Jonah. And so we understand the text about what God does by filtering them through the lens of the text of who God is, who He says that He is. Secondly, we have to always remember that God speaks in our language. Now, we've talked about this, but I think this is important here. And as much as this sermon is a, is a teaching on the doctrine of God, it is also, a, I think, a, a teaching on hermeneutics, on how we interpret the Bible, how we read the Scripture. 
God speaks in our language. Remember, we have that box, and we are confined to that box. We are not able to think outside of our creaturely box. We live in this world. We cannot really comprehend eternity. What does it mean to be outside of time? All we know is our experience. That's all we have. And so God condescends. God speaks baby talk to us, right? When you have a baby and they first start to say words, Baba, Mama, and you, you, you acquiesce to them. You, you come to their level, right? Said, so you want your Baba? You want to go night night? Or you, you want Mama? Right? We start speaking in baby talk because that's where they're at. That's what they can understand. And so God comes, stoops on our level. And he speaks in our language, and he communicates something of himself in words that make sense to us. And so we read in the Bible that God has a head, and that God has eyes, and that God has ears, and he has intestines, and he has a right hand as opposed to a left hand, and he has feet. And we read that his feet are propped up on the earth because the earth is his footstool. Now, are we to understand God somewhere reclined back? with his feet up on the earth? Or are we to understand that we are puny, that God is the sovereign, that we ought to worship this infinite God that treats the entire globe as a footstool for his feet? When we read that God has eyes, are we to see him with some grand eye that can see the entirety of the globe? Or are we to understand something of the perception of the mind of God that wherever we are, and you are, and all of us are, he sees us at any moment? God is said to have ears. Does God have an incredible divine ear that is over the earth, hearing all of these things, a physical ear? No, the Bible says that God is a spirit. God is spirit. That no man can see or has seen him. He is omnipresent. He is in every place, at every time. And thus he cannot be confined to a body, a physical body. God the Father. And so when we read these words that God has a a body that God has eyes and arms and all of these things. This is, I have the definition there for you, anthropomorphic language. We're using some $10 words today. Um, I've given you the definition because you don't need to remember these. But it's helpful, they're helpful categories to understand as you read the Bible. And so anthropomorphic is human forms attributed to God. God speaking figuratively so that we can understand. When God is bringing judgment and he stretches out his mighty arm, does a big arm come down from heaven and, and slap around the Assyrians? It's his power, right? It's his strength. We, we understand that. If a man reaches out his mighty arm and grabs someone, we, we, we get the analogy. But the Bible also says then that God is angry, that God regrets, that God is provoked to wrath as a man is provoked to wrath. We see the Bible saying that God regrets a decision that he has made. And are we to understand that he regrets as we do? Or are we to learn something of what God is doing through human regret applied to God figuratively? I have another word on there for you. Anthropopathic language. Again, no need to uh, memorize these words. They won't be on the test. But this is figurative language to God in regards to human feelings. So human feelings, human passions applied to God so that we can understand something about God. 
God gets angry. God regrets a decision. God is provoked to wrath. Now, the Bible uses accommodating language to help us understand. You hear in that anthropopathic, uh, the word patient or passions or pathos is the root that is ascribing human emotions to God. So what are, what, are, what are we saying here with all of this? We're saying that God is not like us. That God is not like us. That God, God does not get mad. God does not get mad. Now, that might sound strange. What happens when a man gets mad? When we get angry, that is a passion. Something has happened externally that we perceive as bad or unjust, and so we respond with anger. We are, we are moved to anger because of something we see outside of us. God most certainly is angry with sin. Don't, don't mishear me. God is angry with sin. And so when He punishes sin, as He does, when He punishes the wicked, we say that He is angry because we understand something of a man getting angry and, and getting violent and being frightening. But what we call anger is really God expressing his justice, right? It is God meeting out justice upon those that deserve his justice. When he is mad at the Israelites, it is simply him causing them to experience his justice. It is the working out of his decree. Let me let someone else speak. This is a quote. You and I can get angry and not sin. Amen. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. But you and I cannot be angry without passion. We cannot be angry without passion. He goes on and he says, our anger is an impotent passion. We cannot affect change with our anger. You get mad at someone and you're filled with anger, and then you might want to do something, shake them, yell at them, scare them, whatever you might do, run off, maybe you just don't deal with it. Because our anger in and of itself doesn't do anything. It affects no change. But God's anger is His corrective justice being applied. Maybe I'll say it like this. It is not an affection. It is a perfection. He is not hot and cold, angry and happy. When He is angry at the wicked, He is simply pouring out His justice because He is a just God. Now you might be thinking in your, in your mind, uh, Pastor, please don't then try to tell me that you're saying here that God does not love us. I'm not saying that at all. God has love. God has anger. But praise be to God, His love is not like ours. So two and a half years ago, uh, I was in a room with a lady. A, a few people were there. And the lady next to me had a blue gown on and one of those blue hairnet things. And I had a blue hairnet on and a blue gown. And my wife was laying on the table. And the woman said to me, Dad, she was not my, she was not my daughter. She said, Dad, do you want to cut the cord? And there was my son, Noah, laying on the table, and I cut the umbilical cord, and I saw my son for the first time, right? And I was moved within me because of my son. I was drawn to that baby because that was my son, my firstborn son, my only son. Now, we were in the hospital. There were many babies around, and there's something stirred up when I saw those other babies. But when I saw my son, because that's my son. I was moved to him to love him because I saw something in him worthy of love. And I cut the cord 
And I loved in that moment my son. I moved toward him because he's my son. I was changed when I laid eyes on Noah. Something changed within me because of outside circumstances. God's love, though, beloved, is not caused by a creature. God's love is not sourced in something external. God's love does not increase because of something He perceives in you as good and then decrease because of something He perceives in you as bad. God's love, again, is not an affection. It is a perfection. God is love, is what the text says, right? God is love. And so His love that He pours out on sinners is not because we do good or because we are lovable, but His love is sourced in Himself. God loves because He is love. He is the fount and the source and the creator and has the fullness of love, the perfection of love. Maybe I can say it like this. Emotions are responses. Emotions are responses. When we hate, we see something that we deem as bad and we move away from it. When we love, we see something that we deem as good and we are drawn towards it. But God's love and mercy and justice is not a mere response to things happening to Him, but they are perfections that come from His very nature because He is love and He is just. Let me close this section with one more text before we get into application. If you were to look in the London Baptist Confession or the Westminster Confession where it says that God is without passions, it would take you to Acts chapter 15, verse 14. Acts chapter 15, verse 14. And if you have a modern translation, which I know that the majority in this room do, this text, you will, you will probably come to this text and say, why is this the reference? Because it doesn't make any sense. Because the translation has changed over time of a word in this passage. But if you have today a King James Bible, I'm not positive about the New King James. You'll see what I'm trying to point out here. So what do we have in Acts 15? We have Paul and Barnabas are ministering to some pagans. And these men think them to be gods. You know the text. And these men are, are, are going to worship Paul and Barnabas. They're going to sacrifice a bull. And they want to offer to Paul and Barnabas. They say that oh, Zeus and Hermes are here. They've arrived. Let's, let's bow down to them and worship them. And notice what... Paul says is the reason why they are unworthy of worship. Now this is, I'm going to read from the King James Bible. And saying, Sirs, why do ye do these things? We are also men of like passions with you. We are men of like passions with you. It says like nature, I believe, in the ESV. Uh, the word is homoi apathes. You hear that word, passion or patient. Another translation, which is older and very literal, Young's literal translation, um, says that we are men like affected with you, acted upon as you are. So when, when men come to worship Paul, his reasoning why him and Barnabas are unworthy of worship is because they are men with like passions as the other men are. Because they are acted upon or affected by outside circumstances just like we all are. But God is the only unmoved mover, if you will. Why is this important? Why is this important? Let me just be clear to say, we have skimmed 
the proverbial surface here today. This is an introduction to this difficult topic. But why is this important? One of the things that I've tried to do, that I've attempted to do in this series, is to widen for us in our hearts the creator-creature divide. Is to more and more help us to grasp the infinite God. So we have not intentionally looked at God's attributes of love and mercy. These are wonderful attributes to consider. But those are things that we share with God. And in an imperfect sense, we can love, we can be truthful. But I'm trying to help us see in a greater way the infinite nature of God. That we might more bow before Him in worship. So why is this important? I have three, three things and then we'll close. Number one, only, only an impassable God can promise and give steadfast love. Only a God that is without passions, that is not constantly moved by the acts of creatures, can promise and give steadfast love. Listen to the psalmist. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. There are animal attributes given to God as, as a metaphor. As for you, O Lord, Psalm 4011, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So let me ask you, church. Why is it that as you woke up this morning, and Lord willing, as you wake up tomorrow, you can have hope in the love of God. Why is it, as the psalmist says, that his love is precious and it is a refuge of man, for man, a safe place for man? Why is it, as the psalmist says, that you can have confidence that his love, his mercy, and his faithfulness will preserve you? How can you know that? How can you be sure that tomorrow that love will not look different than it did yesterday? Because God is not passable. Because His love is not based upon passions. It is not increased and decreased with the emotional turbulence of the creature. Praise God that His love is steadfast because His origin is not in you. Right? When I looked at Noah, love was formed because of the object that I was looking into, my own Son. Right? God did not look down at His creation and then love flowed out of God. Love was sourced in God. And if He was moved, beloved, think with me for a minute. If God was so moved by external forces, then there could be something that you could do to cause His love to turn away. If He could be acted upon by your actions and His love be changed, it be turned into wrath, you might wake up tomorrow, and God having seen the incredible wickedness of this world, God having seen the incredible hypocrisy of His own church, all of our secret sin and all of our failings before a holy God, He may very well have said, enough, I'm done. I've given them so many opportunities, so much grace. If He was moved by our actions in that way, as we are, as we might say to someone, I'll, 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 never, I'll never let you go. I'll always be by your side. And they hurt you, and they hurt you, and you say, yeah, it's okay, but I love you. And then one day you say, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And God will never, beloved, say, I'm done, because His love is not a passion. It is a perfection. 
Why is it that you can read the Bible and you can read about the love that was pronounced upon Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joseph and, and David? And you can read of that love and have hope and confidence that the same love that they received is the same love that you received from that God. Because His love for you is not an affection. It is not sourced in you. It is a perfection sourced in His nature. Secondly, only an impassable God can distribute just wrath. Only an impassable God can mete out just wrath. Think about the anger of man, the wrath of man, if you will. We are acted upon. We perceive wrong, evil, injustice, and we are moved to anger. And you know that, that, that picture when a man is... His neck is getting red and veins are starting to bulge out. Are you okay? Yes, I'm, I'm okay. And what happens when we, when we get angry like that? And the, the cartoon character of the top, the man's head is like a boiling pot and its steam is coming out. Sometimes we control ourselves and we're poised and we grit our teeth and we stop doing that, please. Sometimes we, we lose it. We lose our movement. Self-control is, is gone. It's, it's lost. Have you ever, church, in a fit of anger, blurted out something to someone you love that you instantly regret it? A, a passion comes over us and we, and we sin against someone that we love. We, we take out the sword of the tongue and, and slice them at the knees. Because we've lost control. Because the, the passion of anger has overcome us. Have you ever, in the discipline of a child, gone from discipline to something else in a fit of anger as you are getting back at them for the wrong they've done to you? Have you ever, out of anger or seeing a wrong or injustice, maybe someone insulted your spouse, man, your girlfriend, and you said, enough, and laid hands on a man. The anger pours out, and you're overcome. Now imagine if God was like this. Imagine if God's wrath was left up to the emotional turmoil of passions. We are constantly hot and cold. Our entire day is impacted by what we experience. I'm, I'm happy because I got a green light, and now I'm frustrated because this guy came out and it's red. Ugh. We're up and down. Imagine if you sat for an hour and watched the news today. A whole hour. God bless you if you put up with that. And how much do we change in that one hour? Anxiety, fear, anger, hatred, love, hope. It's just all over the place. We're constantly moved, up and down, up and down. And if God's wrath was at the whim of emotional passions, He would be a frightening God. God does act. God does hate sin. God does pour out wrath, beloved. But when He does, it is an expression of His immutable justice being poured out upon wicked men. He does not lose His cool after giving sinners so many chances as we might and say, Enough! I'm done with it all! But he simply distributes justice upon those that have broken his law. Thirdly and lastly, only an impassable God is worthy of worship. It's a strong statement. Strong statement. Only an impassable God is worthy of worship. 
Now, it might seem to us, now I have not addressed something here, if this is on your mind, um, this is a whole other area. I'm not talking in the sermon about Jesus Christ as a man. I'm not talking about Jesus Christ in his human nature on the earth. When Jesus was a man walking on this earth, he had passions. He wept, he cried, he was moved by his friends, he saw things, he, he was passable in his human nature because he is a man. We're speaking here of God as divine, not as God as human. But it might seem comforting to think of God as divine, having feelings like we do. It might at first seem comforting to think that God suffers like me, and so he, he gets me because I suffer, and I have emotional roller coasters, and so God knows my plight. But actually, beloved, that would be terrifying. If God's emotional state was in flux, as, as, as yours is and as mine is, I mean, how, how, how much do we change in a given day? We're up and down, we're hot and cold, we're impassioned, and we're apathetic. All throughout the day. A passable God would be an impotent God. A God that was constantly moved by that which He created. A God that is acting because His creatures were acting upon Him. And, and I'm going to say something that's even stronger. Uh, I think if we have this view of God, He would not be God in the fullest sense. Because his will would be impacted and dictated by humans. His emotions could be changed by something outside of himself. That seems to diminish sovereignty to me. But a God without passions is worthy of worship. Because this God can be a sure refuge and a fortress to his people. He and He alone is the one that we can run to and know that there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. There is no bad mood, if you will, from the Lord where He's just not feeling it today and He rejects us because He's had a bad day or He's been looking down at the church over here and He's fed up with all that they've done. This God we are compelled to bow before because He is the rock. And He will never, never be moved. All this world is shifting sand. We are shifting sand. But the God without passions is a certainty for His people. That every time we bow and draw near to Him, He will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. 